Well, as we come to the word of God this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we do thank you for the work that you are doing through Promise, and we pray that you would continue to sustain her, enable her ministry to continue to have much fruit, enable her to have focus at the task that she has, and may she continue to be able to evangelize the ladies there that she gets regular time with. And Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask for your spirit to illumine our minds, to humble our hearts, to pierce through the, the hard-heartedness that we may have, and may we recognize what Christ is calling us to. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, mankind has the remarkable ability to deceive himself. We can believe something that isn't true. And we convince ourselves that it is true and we keep telling ourselves about it and the more we say it, the more we believe it. And yet, there can be so many things in terms of empirical evidence in front of us that speaks to the contrary and yet we continue to hold on to it. Unfortunately, sometimes this kind of self-delusion is tragic. In 1880, a man named Charles Guiteau started on a path of self-delusion that had disastrous results. He was a man who, after several failed attempts in business and whatnot, he turned to politics. And he believed that he, the speech that he wrote but was never delivered had been the reason that James A. Garfield was nominated to the Republican ticket and was the reason that he was elected president. But Guiteau was known by no one and wielded absolutely no influence. Of course, assuming that he had played such a a significant role in getting the president elected, he wrongfully assumed that he would be rewarded with a diplomatic post overseas. He visited the White House on multiple occasions seeking to have a, a word with the president and even writing a letter saying that he would, instead of Vienna, he would settle for Paris. But this self-delusion continued. He then believed that God had told him that his service to the country was to kill the president. And so on July 2nd, in 1881, Guiteau walked up to President Garfield in a train station and shot him twice in the back. At his trial, he claimed he was not guilty because he was doing the will of God. While in custody and in prison, he made plans to start a lecture tour and to run for president himself. As you can imagine, he was convicted of murder, and sadly, his self-delusion followed him all the way to the gallows on June 30th, 1882. This is an example of self-delusion that has tragic consequences. It led him, led Guiteau to the grave. But unfortunately, there are millions who are, whose spiritual delusion will also lead them to the grave. People think that they are saved when they are not. They think that they are Christians for any number of reasons when they're actually not. They think that they're following Jesus. And yet, when they face Jesus 
face to face on that day. They'll claim, but Jesus, didn't I do all these wonderful things in your name? As Matthew 7 says. And he'll look at them and say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. It's because of this reality of self-delusion that it is imperative that we evaluate ourselves from time to time. That we test our discipleship and we ask ourselves the hard question, am I truly a disciple of Jesus? Our passage this morning, Jesus is testing his disciples and testing to see if their discipleship is real. They claim to be his followers, but is their discipleship authentic? Is it true? And so as, G as we see Jesus testing his disciples, it's gonna prompt some questions for us as well. I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's word to Luke chapter nine, if you're not there already. Luke chapter nine, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 27 this morning. And you can find it on the Pew Bible on page 1030. The events in this passage will prove to be a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. From this point on, he will be instructing his disciples more privately than publicly. He'll be preparing them for his departure from this earth. And so here we see this pivot take place. And so follow along as I read our passage Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels." But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. In this passage, we're going to see that as Jesus tests his disciples on the genuineness of their commitment, it prompts us to ask two questions which reveal the soundness of our discipleship. In other words, these questions will help us to determine whether our commitment to Jesus is true and authentic and real. So let's first, first question this text prompts of us is, do I confess Jesus accurately? Do I confess Jesus accurately? And we see this in verses 18 through 22. Now verse 18, it begins in a characteristic 
Luke fashion, in which he's picking up the narrative, not telling us exactly when it took place in relation to the prior events, but says, now it happened as he was praying alone. Or, as it came to pass, might be another way it is translated. Now, Luke doesn't tell us where these events took place, but Luke, or uh, Mark, and Matthew do. And they tell us it was in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. I don't have a map for you this morning, but if you can picture the map of Israel, and you've got the Mediterranean Sea on the west, and you've got the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea, Caesarea Philippi is up at the very tippy top of the map of Israel. It's up near Mount Hermon in the upper reaches of Israel. As the name suggests, it was the domain of Herod Philip, hence Philippi, and not the realm of Herod Antipas, which Galilee and Capernaum and all of that was under his control. And so being tucked away as it were, it would give some time for Jesus to devote to his disciples. And it says that as they were in this region, he was, verse 18 says he was praying alone. Jesus was praying alone. This detail is unique to Luke, and we're not surprised. Luke has highlighted the prayer life of Jesus over and over again. In fact, it's been noted that, that before every significant event in the Gospel of Luke, Luke has Jesus praying. We've looked at his selection of the 12 apostles, and before that, it says he prayed all night. That detail was unique to Luke. So here, before this great confession of Peter, Jesus is praying. And once again, as we see Jesus praying, he examples for us what dependence upon his Father looks like. Jesus is the divine Son of God. He, you would think, would have like a, a secret communication with God and wouldn't need to pray. But he's doing it all the time because he's walking in footsteps that you and I need to follow, that we too would turn to our Heavenly Father as Jesus did, that we'd seek to get alone to spend time with him. Here Jesus is communing with his Father in prayer, and it prompts us to ask, how often are we going to get alone to spend time in prayer with the Father? Certainly we can have time with prayer with others and that is valuable and good for us to pray more together. And yes, we can pray in the midst of life. As we're driving from here to here, as, as we're doing things throughout life, we can pray. But do we set aside time just to pray? Set aside time to get alone, to be with the Father. Is He your constant companion? Is He your loving Heavenly Father, or is He a, a distant superior that you only rarely throw up requests to? We need to let Jesus' example here spur us on to deeper and more meaningful prayer with the Lord. But even as Luke says he was praying alone, it also says he's with his disciples. Look at it. It says he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And so I think this is saying that he was alone from the crowds, but he still had these men close by him. And so while he's there, and after prayer, he takes time to test his disciples. He wants to see whether they know who he is and what he came to do. Do they understand him and his character and his person and his mission? And so he begins by asking him kind of a broad question, who do the crowds say that I am? 
Remember, these men, the beginning of chapter 9, we're told they were sent out into all of Galilee. And so while they're on a preaching tour and performing miracles, they had the perfect opportunity to kind of get a pulse on the nation. They could hear all that was going on. As they proclaimed Jesus and, and performed miracles, they could hear what people thought about the Lord. And so they, no doubt, are prepared to answer this question. And they begin with a primary answer, and then there's two secondary answers. The primary answer, it says, verse 19, John the Baptist. Primarily, people are thinking he's John the Baptist. But they, secondarily, he, uh, others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Now, these suggested identities are the same as were suggested to Herod Antipas earlier in, cha in chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Remember, he was wondering who Jesus was. He asked this very same question, who is this about whom I hear such things? And he was cycling through these different possibilities. These same possibilities are what the apostles tell Jesus. And these suggestions Although wrong, they touch on something that's true. They see Jesus as a prophetic figure. They see him in line with the Old Testament office of a prophet. He's one who speaks for God. And they no doubt respected Jesus for his boldness. He was not teaching, remember, like the scribes and the Pharisees, their normal teachers that they see. These, uh, th he was preaching with, with a different kind of authority and boldness but they were still far off from his identity, weren't they? Unfortunately, there are many in our present day who likewise spend time hearing from Jesus and spend time around the church and, and they are very familiar with all of the church and things and Christianity and yet they don't truly know who Jesus is. They may think he's important, an important man. They may call him a great teacher. They may even call him a savior, but they have not come to grips with who he truly is. They flutter around Christianity, they flutter around the truth like a moth to a light, but they never land on the truth like a bee to a flower to feed upon it. Now I have to imagine that this report, in one sense Jesus I'm sure fully expected, but it had to be a bit discouraging. He's been preaching for over two years, telling Israel who he is. And yet they are hard-hearted. They don't see it. And these people, the populace of the nation, still don't know who he is. But upon that answer, Jesus wants more from his disciples and he wants more from us as well. Look at what he says next in verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Okay, that's great. The, the crowds say that. But listen, men, I want to know who do you say that I am? The you is emphatic. He, you can picture him even pointing the finger, right? But men, who do you say that I am? Peter, in the gospel accounts of this event, surfaces as the spokesman. And not only in this event, but in many others, Peter is seen speaking. And sometimes he speaks too rashly and puts a foot in his mouth. 
but here he speaks truthfully and speaks no doubt for the rest of the men when he says that Jesus is the Christ of God. Peter answered the Christ of God. The Christ is a title. Sometimes you hear Jesus Christ, some people think maybe, oh, Christ is Jesus' last name, but no, Christ is a title that means anointed one, means he's God's chosen one, or it translates, Christ in the New Testament translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, which, where we get the word Messiah from. And so by identifying Jesus as the Christ of God, Peter is saying that They believe that Jesus is indeed the promised one that the prophets of the Old Testament had foretold. Jesus, you are the one that fulfills these prophecies. This Messiah is spoken of throughout the Old Testament. He indeed would be a prophet like Moses, but he'd be greater than Moses. He'd be a king in the line of David, but he'd be greater than David. He would conquer Israel's enemies. He would lead Israel spiritually back to Yahweh. In a spiritual revival, he is the Messiah of God because he's the Lord's anointed, as Psalm 2, verse 2 says. And so over these two years of ministry, the disciples have come to believe that Jesus truly is this anointed one. He is the Christ. Now, it's important to realize that this does not mean they have a full and complete understanding of Jesus. There's many things they get wrong, and we're going to see that as we go through Luke, that there's things they don't understand and won't understand until after Jesus is resurrected. But just like a sprout can grow into a full tree, so this confession, this true confession, will grow into a full understanding of Jesus later on. But based upon this true confession that Peter makes on behalf of the disciples, Jesus wants to make clear that they truly understand who this Christ is. Okay, in other words, he's saying, okay, Peter, I understand that you are confessing me accurately, but do you truly understand what the mission of the Messiah is? Do you truly understand what it is I need to go through? And so he looks to deepen their understanding of what it means for him to be the Messiah in verses 21 and 22. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Jesus didn't want them to say anything. You go, wait a minute. Isn't this the truth? Don't you want the truth to go out to everybody? Isn't this what you've been hoping for? But the thing is is that Jesus wanted this declaration to be done in a certain way. Because you see, for the disciples to suddenly turn around and go out and proclaim that Jesus was the Christ of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the promised one, was going to result in a a reaction that Jesus didn't want because he knew that the crowds would simply hear that Jesus was the political deliverer of Israel. He'd already seen this. We, last week, looked at the feeding of the 5,000. Luke doesn't record this, but in John's account of the feeding of the 5,000, they said that after they saw Jesus do this miracle, they all rushed to crown him the king. They had political ambitions for Jesus. They ignored the spiritual reality that they needed to repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus. Instead, they just wanted to anoint him king and have him go and beat up all the Romans. And so Jesus knows that if this is declared by the apostles to go out and say, Jesus is the Christ, that he's going to stir up this political excitement. 
And so they take it the wrong way. And so Jesus will continue to present himself to the people all the way up until the cross. But he's going to do it in his own way. But not only does he say that they to uh, not share about him being the Christ of God, but they need to understand what's included in this description of Messiah. It's not just a political deliverer. In fact, the immediate future is not deliverance and glory, but it's suffering. Look at what he says in verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. For the first time, Jesus explicitly reveals and predicts his coming death. Notice how he describes this right here in verse 22. First, he calls himself the Son of Man, a title we've seen already. This is pulling from Daniel chapter 7, again, his veiled uh, declaration of his deity, of his Messiahship. But in contrast to the dominion and victory spoken of in Daniel chapter 7, where he's coming on the clouds of heaven and a kingdom and dominion is given to him, Jesus is saying that same Son of Man must first suffer many things. This connection between the Son of Man and suffering was hinted at in the prophets. Obviously, we know Isaiah chapter 53, right? Which speaks of this Messiah being slain for the transgressions of Israel. By his wounds, we are healed. But I think even in, in, in Daniel, Daniel 7 speaks of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, bringing deliverance. But then in chapter 9, it tells of how the, the Messiah would be cut off. That same Messiah figure would have to die. And yet, Israel at the time did not pick this up, did not recognize that that meant that Jesus needed to be slain. Now he says in a general sense, the Son of Man must suffer many things. But then he goes into detail of what that looks like by giving three passive verbs, which, mean, which means that it's actions being done to Jesus. Right? Look at it. First, he must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. The, chief, the elders, the chief priests and scribes is, uh, identifies a group that is the, the leading body of the Sanhedrin. They're making decisions for the nation of Israel, the religious leaders of the nation. And the religious leaders, Jesus says, are going to utterly reject him. This word reject is Jesus picking up terminology from Psalm 118, verse 22, that prophesied that the builders would reject the cornerstone, right? That's a verse that's quoted throughout the New Testament. The stone that the builders rejected would become the cornerstone. Jesus picks up that word rejected here and applies it to the leaders of his day. But first, so first he'll be rejected. Secondly, he'll be killed. Now here he doesn't mention the method of execution. We know it's the cross because we know the whole story. But here he doesn't yet reveal that it is the cross, the Roman cross, that he will be murdered upon. But the point is, is that he will be killed innocently. But the third passive verb here is to be raised. The first two speak of what sinful men will do to Jesus. The third one speaks of what God will do to his son. 
It's a divine passive. He'll be raised on the third day. Isn't it amazing how clearly and plainly Jesus prophesies about how his life will end? He doesn't mince any words. He's extremely clear. He knew what awaited him. And here's the thing, it had to happen exactly as he said. I want you to notice the verb must. Or maybe your translation says it is necessary. The Son of Man must suffer many things, or sometimes translated, it is necessary. This is a special verb that indicates that these events were not going to happen by accident. They were not going to happen contrary to God's plan. Rather, the crucifixion of Jesus had to happen according to God's plan. It must take place because God had determined for it to take place. In other words, the cross was a divine necessity. Know this, that Jesus did not die because his plan was thwarted. Rather, he was crucified because God's sovereign plan carried it out. And the book of Acts makes this very explicit. Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts 22, verse 23, says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew this was going to happen. God planned for this to take place. The cross was not sinful men messing up God's plan. The cross was always plan A. God sovereignly ordained and brought about the death of Christ for the atonement of sin. He's the one in control. He's the one in charge. All history is according to his plan, and that is especially seen in the cross of Christ. If he brings about the greatest evil to accomplish his purposes then we know he's got every other little evil, every other smaller evil under his control and using it to accomplish his purposes. God is absolutely sovereign. And even the sin of men cannot thwart his plan. In fact, God's so powerful that even the sin of sinful men, he can use for his purposes to ultimately bring him glory. He's gonna turn it all on its head. So how do we connect all this together? How do we apply what Jesus has said here to the apostles to us today? Well, let's remember Jesus here through these questions is testing his disciples. He's seeing if they truly know who he is. He's asking them, do you know who I am? Who do you say that I am? And based upon Peter's accurate confession, he then further describes what his messianic mission entails. He says, yes, Peter, I am the Christ of God, but that means that I must be rejected and I must be killed and I must be raised. They needed the full picture. They needed to know, believe, and confess all that Christ is. And this is where I believe this passage intersects us. We, too, need to confess Jesus accurately. We cannot be satisfied with half portraits of Jesus. We cannot settle for only know a part of who he is, it's not enough for us to say that we simply believe. We cannot have a vague notion about Jesus. This passage shows us that we need to have a crystal clear knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to do. I believe there's another thing. We can't just know it up here. Notice what Jesus does here. He wants to get what's up here in the disciples' head and get it out through their mouths. 
he wants them to confess it. And I think that's something for us too. We can't just leave it in our head. We need to confess. We need to say out loud what it is that we believe. And so in essence, Jesus is asking each one of us this morning, who do you say that I am? And he's waiting to hear you articulate an answer. It's not enough to say, oh, God, you know, you know what I believe. He knew what the disciples believed. But he, he wants us to articulate it. He wants us to say it. In one sense, it doesn't inform him, but it helps us. We don't sometimes really know what we believe until we hear ourselves say it, until we have to actually put it on paper or we have to actually say it. Well, what, who is Jesus? Well, you, you know, he's, um, you know, uh, God, you know, he's, he's God, and right? We have to start finding words. But it's good for us. We need to speak and answer. We need to open our mouths and put words about who we believe Jesus to be. And so this tests our discipleship at the most fundamental level. Do we, what do we truly believe about Jesus? Not just what we've heard, not just, yeah, ditto, but who do you believe Jesus to be? Pull away your spouse. You can't ditto off of them. Pull away your parents. You can't ditto off of them. You gotta answer for yourself. Who do you say Jesus is? You must be able to pull from your own mind and heart and art an accurate confession of Jesus Christ. Now hear me, this does not mean that every Christian needs to produce a long theological statement about who Jesus is, okay? You don't have to be a theology professor to be a Christian. In fact, did you notice how short Peter's statement is? The Christ of God. The Christ of God. In Matthew, Jesus blesses him for this. He says, blessed are you, Simon, for heaven revealed this to you. This simple statement's enough, but it's true. And so a true confession of Jesus, get this, can be simple enough for a child to confess, but it's gotta be accurate. It's gotta be true. And so the testing, Jesus is testing our discipleship this morning through the word of God and asking us, do you claim to be a Christian? Do you claim to follow Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Do you have a simple yet accurate answer to that question? These questions should comfort the redeemed. If you know Jesus, you say, yes, I'm no theologian, but I know who Jesus is. He's my Savior. He's the Lord of all. He's the Son of God who came upon this earth and died on my behalf. All praise to him. But if you can't produce a simple and accurate confession, and there's reason to question whether you know Jesus in a saving way. You may have heard much about him over the years. You may have listened to many sermons. You must maybe like church and worship music and you may feel inspired from preaching or from reading your Bible, but those feelings or experiences are not the basis of the criteria for following Jesus. It's a confession in Jesus. So the first question this text prompts us to ask is, do I confess Jesus accurately? This is convicting, but we get pressed even tighter with the second question, and that is this. Do I deny myself completely? Do I deny myself completely? Verses 23 through 27. 
Here in 23, Jesus turns from talking about himself to talking about his disciples. And it says, verse 23, he said to all. He begins to speak to all. I think this includes the 12, and I also think there's probably other disciples, others like the women and others that follow him, that have followed him to this area. It's not the fascinated crowds, it's people that are more devoted than that. But still, it's more than the 12 that are there. And he then, turning and speaking to all of them, gives a startling and far-reaching command. He addresses himself to those who desire to come after him. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is essentially him saying, if anyone wants to be my disciple, if anyone of you wants to be my disciple, you need to do these things. Or in today's language, you might say, if you want to be a Christian, then you need to do these things. What Jesus is commanding here is required of all Christians. It's par for the course. It's the standard on every model. This is not for those who want to go the extra mile. This is just those who want to get in the race. And so I ask you this morning, before God is your witness, do you want to follow Jesus? Do you desire to go after him? Do you want to learn his ways? If so, the Lord gives you three commands here in this verse. Command number one, let him deny himself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Now we can think of denying ourselves by denying ourselves something, right? Oh, I'm denying myself chocolate right now. Or I'm denying, gonna die, deny myself some ice cream tonight. But that's denying ourselves of something. What Jesus is calling here is, is a simple command to deny our entire selves. And so we need to think of, of self-denial, as this passage calls us to, in terms of denying a person. For example, you're no doubt familiar with, G, with uh, Peter denying Jesus on the night of his betrayal. He didn't, Jesus, or Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter was asked, do you know this man? And he says, no, I don't know the man. That's the kind of denial that Jesus is talking about here. When faced with our old selves, when faced with our center of being, of the self-centered control of ourselves, we say, no, I don't know that person. I've denied them. Denial here is speaking of denial of relationship, denial of association. Because you see, at the core of every single human being is this core in which we want to be the self-determiners of our lives. We want to be in control. We want to be in charge. We want to set the agenda for our lives. We want to determine what we will do. We want to be in the driver's seat. This is our lives, isn't it? And yet Jesus here says, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to come after me, you need to leave that central core of selfishness behind and say, I don't know that person. I disassociate with them. Jesus wants us to completely remove ourselves and leave behind that proud, selfish, independent identity that each of us is born with. And so, friends, that means if we come to Jesus, it means the end of us. It's the end of you. It's no longer about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. 
completely and simply. But coming to Jesus, following him, will cost us everything. It demands our life and our all as the hymn we sang, right? For me to follow Jesus, I have to say, Micah is dead. I don't know Micah. I have no relationship with him. Once, he called the shots and controlled my life, but no longer. It's Jesus that calls the shots of my life. It's Jesus that's in charge. And so I deny the old Micah. I disassociated from him long ago. And doesn't this challenge us on so many levels? We still want to be in the driver's seat of our lives. We want our desires and our wants to control what we do. We have our sights on the American dream. We have our desires set on, on what this world can provide. We want to keep up with the Joneses. And, and, we, and we run the rat race called career development in order to do so. The gospel, the good news that goes out to all of mankind includes this call to self-denial. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and follow me. Friends, why could Paul say that I don't count my life of having any value? Why could missionaries like David Livingston and Hudson Taylor say after giving their lives to give, giving the gospel overseas, leaving family and friends behind to say I never sacrificed a thing? Why can they say that? Because they already gave it all up. It wasn't theirs. Their life belonged to Christ. They died to themselves. They denied themselves. And friends, again, this is the calling of every Christian who would come after Christ, that we would deny ourselves. There is no Christian discipleship without self-denial. There is no Christian discipleship without self-denial. But Jesus presses us further. Look at the second command. Let him take up his cross daily. Now every first century Jew knew what a cross was. This was the tool of execution by their Roman overlords. When a criminal was taken to be crucified, he was required to carry the cross beam of his cross to the place of execution. And so when Jesus says that those who would be his disciple must take up his cross, he's commanding them to willingly surrender to God's will no matter the cost. Jesus is calling his disciples to go all the way. They must be willing to even lose their lives for his sake. And notice the little word daily. This isn't a one-time thing. This surfaces something that we must do every day. Yes, we do this when we are converted to Christ, but we, every day we need to die to self. Every day we take up our cross and we die and we die and we die again. Today it's not about me, just as, just as yesterday was not about me. And tomorrow won't be about me. And we've got to remind ourselves of that and take up our cross every day and say, I'm following a crucified Savior. I must take up my cross today too. Jesus is saying this, if I'm going to the cross, and if you want to follow me, that means you're going to the cross too. These are hard words, friends. But this is the truth. These commands are total. We can't just deny ourselves and, and, and give Jesus part of our lives. This is all-encompassing. Every day, every area of our lives must be surrendered to King Jesus. He is Lord. And so we take up our cross willing 
to even die, to give it all for him. The third command, he says, let him follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is simply a command to be his disciple. This is what it means to be a disciple. You follow. You follow your master. You follow your Lord. A disciple is another word for a learner. And so if you want to follow Jesus, you must lay yourself aside, deny yourself, die to self, take up your cross daily, and then go sit at his feet. Learn from Jesus. Listen to his word and obey it. We need to follow the, the Savior. Jesus wanted his disciples here up in this region of Caesarea Philippi to recognize that their Lord was on the way to death and he's calling them to that same path. In other words, if you follow the Messiah who has a cross-shaped life, then you too must have a cross-shaped life. Because as he says, a servant is not above his master. If our Lord experienced pain and suffering on this earth, then we who would follow Jesus should expect the same. And so this great command, but this hard command, Jesus gives to his disciples and to us. Now there's many people that would hear that, that would hear the cost that he's requiring and say, that's too much. I, I can't do that. Are you crazy? But Jesus gives some extra points for us to consider. For those that might think this is overkill, for those who might think this isn't worth it, he gives three motivations or three reasons for why this command is so urgent and so critical. Notice in verses 24, 25, and 26, they all start with the word for. He's giving an explanation. He's giving a reason for why he just gave this command. First reason is preservation. Why should you follow Christ? What should be the motivation? Is because of preservation. We all have a natural desire to save our lives. I mean, this is, this is built into uh, our survival as human beings. We want to live and we work to keep ourselves alive. And so Jesus plays off that natural desire for preservation and says, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. People naturally want to preserve their life. They want to, to continue to live and they find ways to do that. But notice Jesus here is talking about two different kinds of life. He's talking about a life here on this earth that's filled with all this world has to offer and then he's talking about a life that will be found in the life after. An eternal life, a spiritual life that's found only in Christ. But folks, this is two competing visions of life. Again, this is not just about dealing with a little niche of your life, a little spiritual section of your life. This is about how you live every day, every minute. Are you living to save your life here on this earth? Meaning, are you seeking to make your life comfortable? Are you seeking to live self-centered here upon this earth in which your desires reign supreme and you do all that you can to please yourself? That's what Jesus means by saving his life in the here and now. The other vision is one in which we deny ourselves and we've given it all to Christ. We follow him completely and we might lose everything in this earth. We might even die for the sake of Christ but we will save our lives in the end. When the ultimate reckoning is given, we will find salvation. Folks, this is 
what all of our world is seeking to preach to us is to save our lives and find life here in the here and now. This is the message of Disney to just follow your heart. And unfortunately, according to this verse, that very path is a path that leads to destruction. There is certain loss, certain loss if we are driven by our own hearts and our own desires for whoever would save his life will lose it. But you follow Jesus and you might experience pain and suffering in this life. You might experience loss, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Certain salvation, certain gain. Oh folks, we need to look at our lives we need to realize the messages of the world is feeding us and saying, am I building my life here or am I building my life in the life to come? Where are my priorities? Am I thinking about life? Am I thinking about my choices? Am I thinking about how I spend my money and time based upon eternity, based upon Christ and his priorities? The first reason or motivation is preservation. Second is profit. He rolls right into this, verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If you gain everything, if you could have all the money, all the power, all the pleasure, he says it amounts to nothing, a big zero, and if, if you lose yourself. He wants us to look with truth. In other words, it is totally worth it to reject the, the world, reject all the world has to give if we would but save our souls, if we would but cling to Christ. If we have him, we have everything. The third and final reason or motivation Jesus puts forward is punishment. Preservation, profit, and punishment. Verse 26. Why should you consider this command of Jesus? Why should you consider giving up everything and denying yourself and taking up your cross daily and following him because there's consequences if you don't. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus is saying, listen, if you listen to my words and you accept them, there will be acceptance when I come again. But if you reject these words now, if you turn away from me and you are ashamed of my words and therefore ashamed of me, then there will be consequences later. Now to be ashamed here is not just mean to blush or to be embarrassed. It, it means that they deny any link with Jesus. It's like Peter was ashamed of Jesus. I don't know the man. It's a complete rejection, unbelief of what Jesus said. As we've said, the world looks at a crucified Savior and mocks because his followers are persecuted. They're weak. And so the rich, the powerful, the pleasure seekers of this world scoff at Jesus and his, his, his message of self-denial. They want nothing to do with him. They are ashamed of his words. But Jesus says here for the first time that he's coming again. Notice that here in this passage, we have the first explicit reference to his first, the mission of his first coming, his death upon the cross. We also have his first reference to his coming again, coming in glory, when he will vanquish his enemies, when he will return in judgment. 
He comes the first time in salvation to call sinners to himself. And they have a time in the here and now before he comes again to turn in repentance and faith, to hear his words and to accept his call. But he's going to come again. And that second time will be for judgment. And if they have re rejected Christ in this life, then there will be punishment that comes in the next. Oh, people can laugh at that now. But just as certain as the cross was future at this time, so we know the certainty of his return for judgment. Now the apostles were probably confused. They go, wait a minute, Jesus, I thought you were here to set up your kingdom. What do you mean you're gonna be killed? And so Jesus gives them verse 27. He says, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This promise is gonna be fulfilled in the next passage that we'll see when we return here that he's gonna give them a preview, a sneak preview into what his kingdom glory looks like so that they will be encouraged to recognize that the kingdom of God has not been abandoned. It will come. His glory will be seen, but it's gonna come at a second coming. But friends, as we, as we wrap up this passage, Jesus here has been testing his disciples' discipleship, and it tests ours as well. Do I accurately confess Jesus, and do I, I uh, what's my second point? Do I uh, conf uh, deny him, deny myself completely? <laughs> Thank you. I'm testing you and testing myself. <laughs> deny him completely. Deny myself completely. Friends, these are, these are hard words. But the call to each one of us this morning is to ask ourselves these hard questions. Again, we can't borrow from anybody else. Only we can answer these before a holy God, and one day we will. But notice, in between his first coming when he was killed and raised and his second coming when he'll return in glory and judgment, we now have a calling to walk a path of self-denial, of taking up our cross daily and following our Savior. There is life only found in him. And I pray that God gives you eyes to see that, that you might walk in his ways, rejecting all that this world has to offer for his name and his glory alone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would please work this in our hearts. We indeed want to follow Jesus with all that we have. We want to leave it all behind. No turning back. No turning back. But Father, we are tempted we can often give in to ourselves. We often want to be in control. Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work in each one of us. For those, Father, who have been living their life for themselves, may you bring them to their knees this morning, confessing that they need Christ or all is lost. And Father, for your people, the church, that we would be renewed in our desire to live boldly for Jesus in this day and age, rejecting all the pleasures and, and glitz and glamour that this world has and seeks to live for the glory of Christ alone until he comes or you call us home. We want to see you glorified in our lives. We ask you to do this in Christ's name. Amen.